So Elaine just read the text for this morning, Ezra chapter 3, that we'll be looking at. She was reading that. I was thinking about all those names. Isn't it hard sometimes to read Old Testament uh, narratives and you get to all these names and you think, why Why couldn't the translators just like rename these guys like Jerry and Steve and stuff? <laughs> be a little easier, right? A lot of difficult names in there, but you did well, Elaine. Good job. Um, let me uh, let me set the scene a little bit uh, for where we're at by starting with a question, and it's, it's to ask you this: What things constitute the highest priorities in your life? Take just a second to think about that. What things constitute the highest priorities in your life? Now, if we were to to get a, a survey of everybody, there'd probably be lots of different things, but it, I would guess that as we started to to drill down a little bit on those the list would narrow and narrow and narrow to a point where there's probably not a lot of difference between all human beings. If we really get down to brass tacks, the highest priorities in our lives probably are the things that we would identify as the things that are most lasting and the things that that, uh, speak to security. So we might say, my family is my highest priority. My children are my highest priority, right? My, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I don't want to go too far down the line. I don't want to have too many ideas in your mind. But if let's just say security and lasting value, would you agree with me? Okay, good. I'm glad you <laughs> Makes me feel better about my intro. Um, what, what we're going to be looking at this morning in this text is, is going to point us to what our highest priority ought to be. Because it's a good thing for us to identify that, that the things that should matter most to us are the things that have lasting value and the things that bring ultimate security to us. That's a, that's a good recognition. So the question really is, what is that thing that can be true for all of us? What's the thing that can be true for all of us? It's the most lasting value and it brings the most security. And so here's the main idea of the message this morning. The safest, most secure place you can ever be is in obedient worship of the loving creator who holds our life and hope in his mighty and dependable hands. The safest place you can be is in obedient worship to God. That's the main idea of the text. Now let me set the scene a little bit again for where we're at in Ezra chapter 3. We started this sermon series a week ago looking at chapters 1 and 2. The setup here is this. Uh, we're, we're talking about the period of time. Well, let, let me go back a little bit. Let's talk very quickly about the history of Israel. So, so Israel as a nation experiences its high point in the reign of King David. Right? And David is, a, is, is, we're told in Scripture, a man after God's own heart, though imperfect as he was. This was the high point of Israel. This was, this was when Israel was most prosperous and when Israel was most faithful to following after the Lord. After David, though, things started to go downhill. They started to unravel. His son Solomon comes on the throne. He starts well, doesn't end so well. And so by the end of Solomon's reign, God says that because of the unfaithfulness of him and the nation, the unraveling of their devotion to him, and they're looking around now to placing their hope and their trust into false gods surrounding nations' gods. God says, I'm going to divide this nation. I'm going to bring a judgment upon you. 
if you don't turn back. And they don't turn back, and so he follows through on what he said. There's a judgment from God that, that breaks the nation into two parts, a northern half and a southern half. And for the rest of the scriptures, uh, in the, the, the sort of the latter half of the Old Testament, when you hear the word Israel, it's referring to the northern kingdom. And when you hear the word Judah, it's referring to the southern kingdom. So they have separate kings at this point, and the Israel kingdom, the northern kingdom, has no good kings, and they don't last very long before the prophets continually say, look, if you're not going to turn back, God is going to completely wipe you out, and they don't, they don't do it, they don't last long, and the Assyrians come, and they capture and conquer the northern kingdom. The southern kingdom of Judah, which is where Jerusalem was, lasts a little bit longer because they've had a couple of good kings who've brought about some reforms, who have brought the people back to a right worship of God, but it, it's just few and far between, and they, they just last another 150 years or so, and then the Lord says, I'm going to judge you for your unfaithfulness, and they're conquered and captive by the Babylonian Empire and carted off to Babylon, modern-day Iraq, by the way, as captives. They're exiled. Right? There's a period of 70 years that they're in exile. This has all been prophesied. We talked about this last week. But at the end of that period, God said, I will bring you back. So judgment is followed by mercy. And God says, I'll bring you back into the land. And so Ezra is the story of that bringing back the, the, the return to the land. As desolate and decimated as it is, they're getting to come back. It's God's mercy now after judgment. Uh, allowing them to repopulate Israel, to repopulate Jerusalem. And so there's this new exodus now back into Canaan, all right? So that's where we're at with the book of Ezra. The priority of the return was not simply to rebuild, but really it was about reconnecting with God. It's about coming back to the place where God can once again dwell with his people. And so they need to rebuild, not just a city, but they need to rebuild a temple. They need to rebuild a dwelling place so that God's presence can be with them. And that's what they're about to do here in chapter 3. So we're going to be talking about this, this priority, this need for them, not just to rebuild, but to worship God. And so I've titled the sermon this morning, The Priority and the Promise of True Worship. It's about seeing how they go about obediently reconnecting with God in right worship. So if you're taking notes this morning, we're going to have two points. And the first point is the first half of the sermon title. It is the priority of true worship. So look back at verse 1. We won't read through it again, but just notice there that we read that the timing of events in the first half of chapter 3 takes place in the seventh month. You see that there? Now, the seventh month is the Hebrew month of Tishri, which coincidentally is about the same time of year that we're in right now. It's September, October period of time. So they're in the seventh month of, of Tishri, and there are two significant things, two things to note about the timing of the, this occurring in the seventh month. The first one is this. Tishri, the seventh month, is the most important month in the Hebrew liturgical calendar. Okay? Now, I'll talk about that a little bit more later, but just note that. Most important month in their liturgical calendar. The second thing of note is that this would have been a very short period of time after they began their return and landed back into uh, to Israel. Uh, we're talking just a mere matter of weeks 
All right, so this is happening right away. Cyrus decrees that they can go back. They start to go back, and very quickly we see the timing here of them gathering together in Jerusalem. I want to focus on that fact that it's just been a few weeks for a couple of minutes because I want you to consider, I think, some significant things about that. All right, let me ask you this. If you'd just been released from 70 years of captivity and you're returning now to your ruined and desolate homeland, and it took you about four months, by the way, to get there. That, that walk, that long walk from modern day Iraq, you're going through, you know, Iraq, Jordan into Israel. It takes about four months. You've just done that after 70 years of captivity. What do you suppose would be among your first priorities? I, I think about that myself and I think, well, building a home for my family, finding work, right? Maybe starting a business. Uh, maybe planting some crops so that I can provide food for my family. I was thinking about the great Chicago fire of 1873 this week, because I think there's some similarities. Uh, not an exile situation, but a situation where the city is completely destroyed and people have to come back in and decide, what are we going to do first? And I did a little bit of reading about that those weeks following the great Chicago fire in 1873. And this is, this is what most of the sources I was reading were telling me, essentially, that the rebuilding started immediately. In fact, some of the sources I read were telling me that the rebuilding started even before architects and engineers had completed designs. People were so interested in getting those houses rebuilt that they just went for it, right? And I think that seems like a logical thing to do. You might want to wait for the engineers to, you know, give you the go-ahead. But it seems like the logical thing to do to just rebuild as fast as you can. So I read this. In Ezra chapter 3, and it's a bit surprising to read here that within just a few weeks of the return, everybody who comes back into the country essentially drops their, their stuff and they head together, as we're told here in verse 4, as one man into Jerusalem to begin observing the Feast of Booths. Now, the Feast of Booths would have required them to basically build flimsy tent-like structures and camp out in them for a week on top of a roof, right? So again, I'm thinking about if I'm, if I'm after a four-week journey and seven years of captivity, I probably want to think of real quickly about building a really comfortable bed. And that's not what they're doing. They're saying, let's go camp out on the ground. The outside observer, this is a really curious thing, right? What are they doing? Another important detail in the text, verse 3, tells us that the children of Israel were in fear because of the surrounding peoples of the lands. What is that all about? Well, the surrounding people of the lands would include the Ashdodites. It would include the Samaritans, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Edomites, who were living in the land. And if you think back to the original Exodus with Moses, as as the people were coming in through Joshua into that promised land, these were the peoples who were living there, right? And what did they do? They, they were supposed to kick them out. They were supposed to take full possession of the land, but they didn't do that. That's part of the disobedience. So these people are still there. So now we're seeing a second exodus as God's people are coming back into the land, and they're finding the same group of ungodly foreigner enemies there, uh, just like they did during the first exodus. So we're told here that they were afraid. And I think that's a justifiable fear because for those enemies who were in the land, they would see 
the invading Hebrews again as refugees who were there to take away their stuff, their food, their land, their power. And they wouldn't have been very welcomed there. Just like refugees in our own country are often afraid, right? Because they feel like people are saying, hey, what are you doing in our country? Same kind of situation. So the fear is justified. So again, imagine if you're one of these returning exiles. Would you feel safe dropping off your stuff, unpacked probably, and just heading into Jerusalem for weeks or months on end seems like a pretty risky thing to do. So why do it? Well, it's about priorities. It's about priorities. What is most important? And I think we could say with a high level of confidence that the people learned something from their exile. They learned that their former priorities, which was about their stuff, which was about them just sort of doing their own thing, which was about sort of intermingling with the, the foreigners who were in the land and intermarrying and, and, and looking at their false gods and, and ultimately at the end of the day, turning their backs on their one true God. That's what got them into this mess in the first place. It didn't provide security for them in the long run. It provided instability for them, exile, kicked out, chaos in their lives, right? And so, and so I think it's reasonable to say that they're going, you know what? Yeah, those things, those problems are still there. Those potential dangers are still there. But if we learned anything, what we learned is this. Our most important priority is to not worry about those things, but to focus on worshiping God properly. And so that's what they do here. And again, it's the main idea. The safest, most secure place you can ever be is in obedient worship of the loving Creator, this God who who was so good to them, who had given them everything, this land flowing with milk and honey, this promise that I will be your God, you will be my people. He's, he's a good and loving God, right? What safer place is there to be than in the hands of this God who holds our life and hope in His mighty and dependable hands? So they learn from their past failures. They don't want to repeat exile. And so they say, we better figure out how to worship this God rightly. And so what we see now in the, the text here are three priorities for their worship. And this is where we're going to spend most of our time looking at the text. Three priorities. If you recognize that the most important thing we can do is be in worshipful, obedient fellowship with God, what does it look like? What does it look like? And here we go. Priority number one for their worship was that it would be word-driven. It would be scripture Driven. Notice at the end of verse 2, we're told that they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it as it's written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Right? They looked up their Bibles and they said, what are we supposed to do? What does it say in the word? At the end of verse 4, they kept the Feast of Booths as it's written, again, as it is written and offered the daily burnt offerings according to the rule. So they looked at the scriptures again. What does it say? So their worship priority was, first of all, that it would be driven by what the scriptures tell them. Now, why is that important? Well, it's important because, again, the scripture is God's revelation to us. 
It's God's word. It's listening to what he actually says. And he has prescribed in his word who he is, how he intends to be known, how he intends to be related with. So anything outside of just saying, God, who are you as you've revealed it and how have you revealed how we communicate with you would seemingly be kind of silly, right? We would be, any any other way, we would be fashioning a God after our own imagination, after our own creation, after our own image and desires. When God has said, no, here's what I'm like, his word instructs us on how he desires to be corporately worshipped. Now that corporately is an important thing. That's what they're doing here. They're gathering together as one, right? So when we do that corporately, God says, I've told you how to do it. Read my word. We call that the regulative principle, by the way, in terms of how we think about corporate worship. You ever notice that, those of you who are regularly a part of Edgewater, do you ever notice that, and I'm sure this is true for you guys at, at Rogers Park too, there's a pretty typical order of service every Sunday when we gather together. There, it's, we're not high church, right? Uh, but we have a liturgy, don't we? If you haven't noticed it, it's, it's pretty much like this. We sing, right? We have announcements, but then we sing more, we pray, we read scripture, we open up the Bible for a, the preached word through a sermon, we respond, and we do baptisms, and we do communion, and that's pretty much what we do every single time we gather together, right? And there's a reason for that. It's what we call the regulative principle. When we look in the scriptures and we see what's been laid out for us and how we're to worship God corporately, we look to the example of, of the Old Testament here. We look to the example of the New Testament and we see that basically God's people did a few things. They preached the Bible. They read the Bible. They prayed the Bible. They sung the Bible. And they saw the Bible, meaning that they looked at those visual displays of baptism and communion. And that's, that's a, 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 a sort of a, a very simplified yet complete picture of what we're told, how we're told God wants us to know and worship him as we gather together corporately, right? Read it, preach it, pray it, sing it, see it. The gospel, the Bible. And as we do that, we recognize that in all the things that we do, right, which includes, you know, the singing and the, and the greeting one another and all that stuff, there's a, there's a priority even in all of that, that, that the word of God read and preached is the center of, of our time gathered together. And that's intentional as well. Because I think that's the point. God's word is the centerpiece of our corporate worship. It's meant to be. Why? Not because the Bible itself is the object of our worship. No, but because the Bible is the revelation of the object. This is how God has made himself known. So it's central to us because this is where God speaks to us. When we say we want to come before you and hear from you, God, it's, it's right here. So it instructs us on how God desires to be worshipped and it's the centerpiece of our corporate worship. And the children of Israel here give us a model to follow in worship. They worshipped according to the scriptures because they knew what they needed was reform. They hadn't been doing it right previously. That's what got them into all this trouble. They needed reform. And so they worshiped 
according to the scriptures for that reform, and it remains true for God's people at all times. We always need reform. Semper reformanda, right? Always reforming, always reforming. Why? Because our tendency is to want to move away from scripture all the time and sort of do things according to our feelings and emotions and ideas and, you know, the cultural influences and all that stuff. And, and so semper reformanda is a very important thing. We always need reform and reform happens according to the word of God. That's how the church is reformed. So worship happens in obedience to God's word. That's the first point. Here's the second point. Their worship, the priority of their worship was cross-centered. Now you think, wait, Bill, you're in the Old Testament. (laughs) Where are you getting that? Well, it's a good question. But as we talk about all the time, Jesus taught his disciples all the Old Testament scriptures pointed to him, right? They were about him. And here we see a prime example of this. Look again at verses 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6. And, and kind of just in, in, in different chunks here. But, but do you notice in those verses that there are these references to the altar of God, to burnt offerings on the altar? We see references to the, the animal sacrifices that were taking place. They were taking place according to what was in the scriptures. And there was also this, this free will offering. So we get this picture that there was all kinds of, of offerings as the first thing they did was build an altar. The first thing they did was build an altar. Now again, why do that? Well, because they understood something really important. They understood that what they needed was right standing before God. That's something that they had lacked for so long. They needed right standing before God, and they understood that right standing before God, to be in the presence of God, happens on the other side of forgiveness. They knew that the problem, the thing that separated them from God, was their sin. And that had to be dealt with. That had to be done away with. Presence with God, fellowship with God, is a result of reconciliation. The altar was necessary for them to do what they hadn't been able to do for 70 years, offer sacrifices again. Now I said earlier that the seventh month, Tishri, was the most important month in the Hebrew liturgical calendar. Let me get back to that here. I don't think it was coincidence that this is when they landed back into the land. I think they purposed this. I think when Cyrus gave them that directive edict that you can go back and they knew it was going to take about four months that they planned that the first thing that would happen when they got there was it would be Tishri. It would be time to do the festivals that happened in that month, which included the Day of Atonement, the Festival of Booths. I think that was purposeful on their part. We look back into the book of Numbers in chapter 25, uh, 29, and we see what's prescribed for the events of that month, the, the religious observances of that month. We see that there are over 200 sacrifices during the festival of booths and trumpets in Tishri. We're told that they made these sacrifices here in Ezra 3, and again, we're told that they went above and beyond that, that they made free will offerings as well. So I think the the, the picture here for us to, to, to get is that the sheer volume of slaughtered animals and spilt blood is meant to be overwhelming. 200 plus slaughtered animals on one altar, just the blood 
would be gallons upon gallons. And what this represents is their awareness that their biggest problem was their sin. It wasn't their surrounding enemies. It wasn't the Moabites and the Edomites and the Ashdodites or anything else. It, it was, no, it's our sin before God. And they realized that it was their exile from the presence of God that was a result of the sin that they had committed before God and, and nobody else. God and God alone. And that this return was an act of mercy. They knew, because the prophets had made it very clear to them, that their exile was a judgment. But they could see this rightly. This was an act of mercy. God's justice has been satisfied, if you will, through the judgment. His mercy has brought us back. But our sin remains. So we've got to go back and, and start first priority, offering up these atoning offerings for our sin. Why is that important? Well, the Word tells them, tells us, that without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. Leviticus 17, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. And we, we see in the New Testament, the author of Hebrews points back and he's explaining this. And he says, indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Now, this is a strange concept to us, isn't it? This is a strange concept to, to modern people like us. It's a fundamentally different worldview. But it's a fundamentally important one. See, here's the difference. Most people, most people feel like their problems are outside of them. And what they need to do is they need to find the solutions to those problems from within. Whether that's through my resolve, whether that's through my accomplishments, right? I've got problems around and the, the thing that I need to do is look within and find a solution and work my way out of it. That's the default human worldview, but the sacrificial system tells us, no, there's something better than that. Your real problem is within you. And the solution that you need is actually outside of you. Right? Our problem is within. We need a solution that's outside of ourselves. And that's what blood sacrifice is all about. As gory and as weird sounding as the whole thing is, that's what it's about. It is a dependence upon the grace of God. It's a recognition that God is a God of justice. And by the way, we should hope that he is, right? We should hope that he is, and he is. And forgiveness only occurs when God's justice has been satisfied. He doesn't just sweep things under the rug. He's got to, as a just God, he's got to deal with sin. And the consequence of sin, as he says in Genesis 3 and is repeated over and over throughout the scripture, the consequence is Death, sin kills. Yet God provided through the sacrificial system a substitute for his people. You're guilty. The consequence is death. But I'll provide a substitute. I'll provide an animal sacrifice that my justice can be satisfied. The debt can be paid. But it, it won't be your blood that's shed. It's the substitute's blood that's shed. And by that justice being satisfied, You'll be forgiven. There's atonement happening there. Substitutionary atonement. 
So this is how, this is how worship occurs, okay? This is how worship occurs. It's when God's people confess their great guilt. We have to recognize that, that we deserve the consequence of sin, the need for atonement, and then we celebrate the fact that God has been merciful to us in placing our guilt upon a substitute. That's worship. God, we deserve this. You've provided. Praise God for the substitute. Now, of course, the blood of bulls and goats was insufficient. That's why they had to do this every year. It had to be offered over and over again continuously because the guilt of mankind can't be matched by the offering of a lesser creature. We needed something else. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 3 and 4. But in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year. For it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So what's the point of the Old Testament altar then? The point is that it, it points forward to something better. It points forward and it signals the need for a sacrifice that doesn't have to be done all the time, but for something that would be permanent, sufficient. It points towards the coming of a Messiah. The Savior of sinners, Hebrews 10 continues, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. It's just a shadow. It, it points to something. It can't do it by itself. And yet, in Christ, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. The, the, the altar points forward to the need for a Messiah who would come, and he did. His name is Jesus Christ and his death because he wasn't a lesser creature. In fact, he was a far superior one, not a creature, but the uncreated one, the eternal God, the perfect sinless Son of God could die on the cross instead of us and provide a blood covering that was more than sufficient. And so when we gather together to worship, what they're doing here, it's got to be centered on the atonement, the sacrifice. It's got to be centered on the cross because it's at the cross that God removed our deepest problem. He forgave our sin. And he washed us in his mercy by the shedding of Christ's blood once and for all. You have fellowship with God as a Christian this morning. And we do corporately as Christians because of the substitutionary atonement provided through the cross. So our worship recognizes that and says, that's great cause for celebratory worship. We're free. We're reconciled because of the atoning sacrifice. That's the second thing. And then the third element of their worship, their priority, was that it was mission-minded and hopefully expectant. Again, you might be looking at the text and go, where are you getting that? <laughs> mission-minded? Yeah. This is an aspect of worship that doesn't get enough attention in my mind, but it's so deeply rooted in a right understanding of what corporate worship is. 
Notice that the Feast of Booths required an ingathering of the people. We're told that they, that they came together as one man, right, into Jerusalem to celebrate this feast. There was, a, there was an ingathering into one location. And the purpose of the festival was to remind people of the, the days immediately following the exodus under Moses out of Egypt. It, it was a reminder of sort of this already not yet realization of the promise of God. They had been set free from their sin, uh, or from their bondage, I should say. They were set free from the bondage of and the slavery that they were in under Egypt, and they had been delivered out, but they hadn't yet fully taken possession of the promised land. They were in temporary state. They were living in tents, right? So the Feast of Booths, you, you go and you sleep in tents for a week because you're remembering this sort of already not yet This sort of mercy's been received, but we're still awaiting the total fulfillment of the promised land, of the, of the deliverance, of the presence of God. So, so that's, that's what they're doing here. And they're gathered together as one to proclaim that, that we as the people of God together are awaiting this promise. We're awaiting the fulfillment. Now, if we read Old Testament prophets like Ezekiel and Isaiah, and this is a bit of a study to do it, but if you, if you do that, you, you find that they use language around the Feast of Booths, this ingathering, to speak of a coming day when the people from every nation, tribe, and tongue, when God's elect from every nation, tribe, and tongue will be gathered together as one, not in the current Jerusalem, but in the new one, in the new Jerusalem. So the worship of the people here is not just to look backwards to the days immediately following the the exodus under Moses, but it's a look forward to the day when God will bring them in totally and the nations will be gathered together. Isaiah says this, he says, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills. And get this, and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And again, he's looking forward to that, that new day. And of course, we see the fulfillment of that in Revelation. When the elect from all the nations are gathered together with Jesus on Mount Zion and we see and we hear the worship of every tribe, nation, and tongue before the throne, right? Worshiping as one body, we see it fulfilled in Revelation in the new heavens and the new earth. All right, so get this. Bring us back. Corporate worship. What we're doing right now, an in-gathering, right? We're coming together as God's elect who have been scattered throughout the city all week, and we, and we come together as one on Sunday morning. And every local church that's, that's meeting together on the Lord's Day is doing this very same thing. There is an in-gathering. There is an ecclesia, a gathering. It's the church. And we are the present display of this eschatological reality. This, this looking forward to a day that, that hasn't yet fully taken effect. This is the display that it's going to happen. And it is beginning to happen already. Whenever God's people are gathered together for worship, we see proof 
that God is fulfilling this plan, this, this, this plan to unite all the nations together under Christ. To make a people for himself. And again, every local expression of this, every local church is an ingathering from every time period across the age of church history to a, every corner of the globe, wherever the church is gathered. Every local church today proclaims that, but one day we're all going to be brought together as one body, one man, as it says here in Ezra chapter 3, in worship before our common Savior. So when we gather together for corporate worship, it's not just a proclamation that we are the recipients of God's grace. It's that. It's not less than that. But it's more than that. It's also that we are expectant and hopeful, waiting for others to be brought in. This is just the first fruits of what God is doing. He's not done yet. And he's continuing to build his church until this happens, until Jesus returns. And we, we gather together saying, we're still expectant that more are coming. More and more of the nations. We're a testimony, a missional testimony in that regard to our neighborhood and to those nations that Jesus saves sinners. And by the way, that expectant hope that we have when we gather together, I want that to be a very hopeful, it ought to be a very hopeful thing for you. Uh, because I know the longings of so many of our hearts is that we're wondering, what about my son or my daughter or my spouse or my, my family member, my coworker, my neighbor, right? You're, you, you have that, that, that hope, that longing that maybe they would come to know Christ, that maybe God would open their eyes and their hearts to receive the gospel so that they too would be saved from their sin and established as part of this family, right? That we, we all have those longings and those expectations. And, and here's the thing that I want to remind us. Sometimes in the midst of our waiting, we get really weary, right? And we go, why is it taking so long for this to happen? By the way, this was written like 3,500 years ago. And then Jesus came, that was 2,000 years ago. In the New Testament churches, we read their expectation was that he was going to come back pretty soon. And 2,000 years later, we're still waiting, right? Can I just give you some good news in the waiting? If they hadn't waited 2,000 years for this to happen, you wouldn't be included. Right? You weren't born yet. (laughs) And while we continue to wait and wonder, why are we still here? Why isn't this happening? The reason it's not happening is God's not done yet. So some of your sons and daughters and spouses and neighbors and coworkers and friends are yet to be called in, but their names are written in the book. And until they're all brought in, God's not done yet. That should give us hope and expectation. That as we gather together as a corporate family and we worship together, we're proclaiming then God saves sinners and he's not done yet. He's still going to keep gathering more and more people. It, it, it warms our hearts to know, man, I hope it's my friend. I hope it's my brother. I hope it's my son. And it might be. Because God's not done yet. So we have this hopefully expectant attitude in our worship and our worship is missional. It's word-driven. I don't know if I can go back to that. Nope. It's word-driven. It's cross-centered. It's mission-minded. And it's hopefully expectant. 
That's what they're doing here in Ezra chapter 3. That's why they're building an altar. That's why they're sacrificing the animals. That's why they're gathering together. They're saying, this is what the word has told us. God, This is how God wants us to, to worship him. And we need that atonement and we'll celebrate God's mercy and we're waiting for the day when Isaiah's prophecy will come. That's what they're doing. And that's what we ought to do. So that's the priority of true worship. And then lastly, we see the promise of true worship. And I'll, I'll cover this one fairly quickly. But we look at the last half of the chapter, verses 6 through 13. We see that it starts off actually in verse 8. Now in the second year after they're coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel and, and, uh, and Joshua and all these guys start working on the building of the temple. Uh, verses 6 and 7 say that after the altar was built, they started work on the temple. Uh, the altar was first. They had to get the sacrifices back. They needed that forgiveness first. They needed right standing before God. Now they're saying, okay, it's time to build the altar. We need his presence. And so they get to work on that. And it's six months later at this point that it's time for them to begin rebuilding the temple. And I want you to see very quickly two responses of the people as they're doing that. One of them is, is in line with this expectant, hopeful worship, and one of them is not. The first response is that the builders begin to sing. Look at verse 11. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good. I don't know how they did it, what their tune was, but they're singing. His steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. They're singing. And, 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 and we're told that there's trumpets and cymbals, and so it was kind of like rocking, right? It's more like, he's good, right? They're, they're celebrating as they're worshiping. And what this is, is this is Psalm 100. It's, it's again, it's directed by the word. But it, and it's, and it's flowing out of them in song. They're not just reading the Bible and preaching the Bible. They're singing the Bible, right? And their, their, their understanding as they build this thing is like, okay, God, you're, you're, you've forgiven us. Your, your presence is with us. Your promise is back in action. This is happening, God. And they're, and they're grateful. They're full of worship. And then we're told that there's a, another group of people. Some of the older folks that had been alive long enough to see the existing temple of Solomon that had been destroyed, the one that they were rebuilding. So these folks would have been in their 80s uh, at, at a minimum, I think. Uh, but they're not singing. They're crying. They're lamenting because they're, they're going, this foundation doesn't look like the old one at all. We remember the old one. The one Solomon built, man, that was, that was a beautiful structure. That was a glorious temple. And this new one, it's in the same spot, but it's not the same glory. And I think, just for, on a quick note of sort of side application, I think there's something for us to learn about that. I think Ezra includes that for, for a couple of reasons. The second one, the most important one, I'll get to in a minute. But this first one is this. There are, there are two responses when we gather together for corporate worship. One of them's a good response and one of them's not. The good response is to celebrate what God is doing now. Right? God, you're with us. You're pre- you're, you've forgiven us. You're, you're at work. Your, your promises are being fulfilled. The, the people are gathered together. Just to celebrate, no matter what that looks like, 
This is what God is doing. His, his faithful presence with us right now is palpable. Praise God. And then there's the second response that says, yeah, well, it's not like it used to be. Which is to say, they're not celebrating what God is doing now. And I think Ezra brings that up. To, it's kind of high. I mean, he doesn't praise them for that. I think it's sort of a rebuke. Like, what a shame. And I think that's something that can be said to, to, to the older among us. And I'll include myself in that because I'm on the other side of the median age, I'm sure, in this church. There's a tendency for, for us to be able to look back and say, well, things aren't the way they used to be, right? Glory days, right? It was better back in my day. Whatever that might look like, whatever, whatever that might mean, it's easy to despise the, the current state of the church because it was always better back in my day. And that's a terrible attitude. Because it, it ignores what God is doing now. And what God is doing now is what matters because that's what God is doing now. And it's what God is doing to fulfill his promise that he's still bringing in people. And it'll look different then too. Side note, side application. But here's the main application of that. We're meant to see in their longing that, you know what? There's a better temple to be anticipated. The fact of the matter was, this second temple wasn't as beautiful as the first temple. And I think that's very much part of God's sovereign plan because God's saying, look, it ain't about the building. It's not about the building. That's not what I'm doing. I'm not here to build buildings. I'm here to build a people. It's not about the building. We're to anticipate a better temple. And what is that temple? Well, it's the same thing we're meant to anticipate back at the altar with the sacrificial system. We're meant to anticipate a coming day when sacrifices aren't made with animals and God's presence isn't dwelling in a temple. Sacrifice is made by the presence of God himself incarnate as he comes at Jesus Christ and fulfills the ultimate promise of our deliverance of sin, and then says to us that by my blood, because of my finished work, the sufficiency of it, the fact that there's no continual need for it, there is no more barrier between you and God. The curtain of this temple tore that day, and the presence of God entered into us to fulfill the Old Testament prophecies that in that coming day, the law of God and the presence of God would be no longer on tablets of stone, but written on our hearts. There's a better sacrifice and there's a better temple. For through Jesus, we have access in one spirit to the Father. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Do you not know that you're God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Peter's epistle was read to us earlier. Right? He's building a different kind of building. Jesus is the cornerstone of that building and you're the living stones. And because the presence of God's spirit is within us through Jesus Christ, listen, let me go back to the main idea. Because God's presence is with us, by his spirit through Jesus Christ, what safer place can you be? What safer place could you be than in obedient worship 
to this good God who's fulfilling all of his promises and will fulfill every last one of them for your good, what safer place could you be than obedient worship to him? Entrusting your lives to this creator whose mighty hands cannot be thwarted. What's your highest priority? Father, we pray that you'd help us to understand There's no greater privilege for us than to worship you today. There's no greater glory for us than to gather together as one in corporate worship of you. By your word, focused on the cross of Christ and hopefully expectant. A missional display of your power to save sinners and and to, to proclaim to the world that you're not done yet, that you will draw all of the elect under the headship of Christ that we will worship together one day in the new Jerusalem, shouting out in every tongue, glory to God in the highest. Praise be to the Lamb who was slain. So Lord, help us this week as we, as we forget sometimes that that's our greatest security. And we run after some other things and we, we try to grab on to, to security in other ways, even good things. Help us to remember that, no, our, our first and best priority is to be not afraid, but entrust ourselves to a faithful creator while doing good. To worship you in the beauty of holiness for all that you're worth. And to know that our lives are perfectly sustained by the God who has said, in obedient worship to me, I am with you. Thank you for that truth. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the expectation of glory. Help us to live in that reality. Help us to display it as your people. And keep us faithful to worshiping you as you are worthy. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.